Good morning. Go ahead, look at the person sitting next to you. Say, God is good. Amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome, man. I'm so excited for today's for today's message. Uh, we are right here at the beginning here in Carter County of, like I said, school starting back this week. I hear something about Boyd County starting like the 30th, which is incredible. But Carter County this is where we are. And uh, we wanted to just take a moment today and uh, just speak directly to, I think, where we are, not only in this season, not only what's coming up, but speak directly to you in the room today. I'm going to begin by telling you a story. Now, this story is going to take you back in time about 360 years, 380 years, actually, is where I'm going to take you back. I want to share this story today of a boy. 380 years ago, this born, he was born in a small village in England in 1642. This would be the family home of which he grew up in. Now, his life could not have started any worse. He was born premature, which at that point in time was essentially a death sentence for any baby. There was no modern technology, no no real medical care that could have helped him even in that time. That's number one. Three months before he was born, his father died. And then continuing on down that road, you can imagine that just the father's death, the, the amount of pain that this would have caused his wife or his mom, but more importantly, the social and economical status that it left them. It left them now, the mother a widow, in bankruptcy and in great needs of providing. And worst of all, worst of all, if it couldn't get any worse than that, we can find that this boy at just three years old, picture of him three years old, it gets way worse. There was a priest from across the town. And he comes and he, he bids this woman, his mother, he says, would you come? Would you marry me? And so he proposes to him. He said, and I got a home for you just across the way, and you can stay with me there. Mind you, this guy is about 70 years old. She's in her 20s. That's a little wild, right? A little wild in itself. But he gave her one condition, is that you cannot bring the boy with you. And so you can imagine how hard this decision would be. You can see financial security on one side, but then leaving her son on the other. But lo and behold, she makes the decision to actually move in with him, leaving the boy to be raised by the grandparents. Now, you can... Imagine that this young boy may be what he would be feeling in this moment. And really didn't see each other for many, many years until you can imagine the old man died. That was how it all happened, leaving them with security, and then she was able to move back in. But during that time, there's such incredible, incredible hurt. Imagine just being rejected by the person that is supposed to love you the most. Imagine the anger that you would have within yourself, the amount of hate that you would have, not only probably towards your mother, 100% towards the priest, and then even more so to the God that the priest would serve. All of these things led to just a spiral in his life and lots and lots of feelings of hate 
angriness. And as every school teacher knows, that any child that has been born in a situation like that, that only leads not to them being the best student in the class, but oftentimes to them acting out and being one of the most troublesome students in that school. He was that kid. You know, like every teacher, like they have that one on their hit this, and they're like, oh no, they have finally come into my classroom. That kid, right? That's what he was. But you can see the story behind it. The anger, the hate was all built up from everything that had happened to him until that point. But there's light at the end of this story. Enter in on the scene. The turning point in this young man's life is that really we see one man came on the scene, and this man's name was John Houston. John Houston moved into the neighborhood and became the school teacher there and then also became his teacher there. And before this time, we could see there was outbursts in the school, difficulty connecting, and just trouble for every teacher until then. But we see John Houston enters in on the scene. Now, what is interesting and oftentimes very, very difficult, and John Houston does something that is crazy. Now, history doesn't tell us much about him, except that we know he is a devout Christian. He has moved into this area, and he is the teacher of this school. But he finds himself fixated on this young child. And you begin maybe asking questions. Why are you so troublesome? What is there really going on? You can begin to see in his life, he began to see something that was different about this young boy. And so over the course of time, John Houston just begins to just try to chisel away at all that hate and all of that anger. And he had made up his mind. This part is so important. He had made up his mind that there's beauty in there somewhere, and he's going to do whatever he can to bring it out. So he started praying for this young boy. He started helping him. He started loving him. He started listening to him. Now, previously, every year, his grades would come back absolutely atrocious. But what they begin to see is that his grades actually began to improve, that he started to do better. Now, this didn't just happen in a day. This is over the course of months and years. You begin to see improvement in this life. Over months and years of encouragement, appreciation, love, and prayers, gradually this little boy's dark heart started to open up. And whenever it started to open up, what John Houston seen was incredible intellectual capacity, a high curiosity and wonder. And we've seen that he began to excel, especially in math and physics. Now, as he grew up even more and grew up into a man through the help of John Houston and others, he actually found himself getting the opportunity not to farm, but to actually go into a college to where he got to learn. That college was one that is still incredibly, incredibly strong and gifted today, the Trinity College in Cambridge. And when he got there, every single seed that God had planted inside this young heart started to grow and started to bloom. And after a few years, he was the talk of the university. He was the talk of the town. He was the talk of the nation. Today, he is the talk of the world because that little boy's name is Sir Isaac Newton. Now, for you to even understand who that person is, you have to go back to like your physics class to where you would remember. Everybody's like, I'm not going back there. But remember like this thing called gravity? We take it for granted. We assume that this has just always been known and understood. 
This is what he looks like today. It's an incredible, beautiful look. I mean, I think we should bring that one back, right? It's incredible. There's these things called the laws of motion that have been defined and understood. And there's this became this incredible intellectual thought that came from this young man. And so today, what we want to look at is we can see all throughout human history the impact that this guy has made. And we see that he is just one man, but if we go back, there's really been two verdicts on his life. One being he's lazy, will not learn, good for nothing. But then John Houston began to see within this man the intellectual close to the divine, which is actually what you will find on Isaac Newton's gravestone. And so you've got to ask the question, what makes one of those verdicts cease and disappear, and what makes the other come to life? What allows somebody to transform from darkness and death to life and light? And here's what it is. The answer is one man, is one man who accepted his calling to be a spiritual parent to the next generation. One man who chose to see that things were not, the things that were not seen by the physical eye. A dare to surround the next generation with an atmosphere of faith and encouragement to unleash it into the full potential and its calling. So, why share that story? Today we are talking about empowering the next generation. Why share this story? Because we need an army of John Houstons in our time. We need an army of John Houstons. We need an army of spiritual mothers and fathers who will realize that our purpose of being here on earth is not only to fulfill the plans and callings that God has placed us upon our lives, but to do whatever but to do whatever we can to pave the way for whatever God wants to do in the next generation. This is our greatest and most important calling. And why is this so important? Well, number one is that God is the God of generations. So this is so important. We want to start here. God is the God of generations. And we can see back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, where this really comes to life. And really, this really begins. God also said to Moses, he says, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. See, those aren't just three names. Those are three people. Those are three generations. Three, a father, a son, and a son. We can see that that momentum, that vision that the Lord has placed upon it. But not only is is he a God of generations, but God's kingdom is the kingdom of generations. So his kingdom isn't just for a time, but his kingdom goes from one to the other. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to be in this one a couple of times today, but I want to show you just the start of this. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 5 says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God, as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. 
and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we hear the foundation of one of the greatest, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You see, we see that right now in our cultures, there's this strong push that Jesus, he is our father, that God is our father, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he wants the best for you. This is so true. But what we see here is that this is a kingdom word, that this is a lordship, that you are devoting your life to him as the king of your life. And that kingdom isn't just for one generation, but it's for multiple generations. But what we see is not oftentimes what he talks about. What I would rather say is that what we see right now and what we have seen over the course of time is what I would call roller coaster generations of faith. Roller coaster generations. And so what that may mean is that your grandma went to church, your dad didn't go to church, and then you find yourself in a church. And you can see over the course of history that this has been the case. And here is my first thought of why that is the case is because you believe it is automatic. We have this, I won't say you, I apologize. We believe, let's put it that way. We believe that it's automatic. If I can just be a Christian, then wouldn't my kids just be a Christian? Or if I follow Jesus, then wouldn't my kids just follow Jesus? And we think it's just like this magic pill that's just going to want to take one day, and it's just going to automatically happen. But we see that is not the case. We see these roller coasters that happen, and this assumption that it will happen automatically. Rather than, instead of just having this belief that's going to happen automatically, rather we must be a people who realize that one of our most precious callings as a children or as a Christian is to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother for the next generation. To look over your shoulder and spot someone younger than yourself and pray for them and encourage them and surround them with this atmosphere of faith. And we see this example all throughout the Bible. I just want to share a few with you today. There's these two guys, their names Moses and Joshua. Moses, he's become known for leading the people out of Israel. And an incredible story where he split the Red Sea, incredible moment. You hear these words, let my people go. To all of our Prince of Egypt fans in the room. You can go back in time, you can remember Moses for that. But there's this young boy named Joshua. And if we look at how did Moses do this in Exodus 33, 10 through 11, there was this procedure that happened where the Lord would literally fall into what they called the tent of meeting. And his presence would fill the entire tent. But yet it was only customary for what I thought for only one to walk in. But we find here, it says, And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Think about how beautiful that that is. But when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from this tent. 
This is so incredible because here's Moses in the presence of God, but then also with Moses is the young 15, 16, 17-year-old named Joshua. And what is he doing with Moses? He is learning what does it look like to be in the presence of God. Because what Moses is ultimately doing is Moses is introducing the next generation to the presence of God, planting seeds in just a young age that will begin to bloom over time. Let's continue on. Here's another example. This guy named Eli and Samuel. Eli was a priest of the temple, and and Samuel was this young, we call him just the protege or the Padawan learning. We can see in 1 Samuel 3 this incredible story. Samuel, he is literally sleeping in the church. That's like a whole new level of commitment. He's literally sleeping in the church. And he hears this word, Samuel. I imagine it's like that. It may just be like Samuel. I don't know. It could have been one of the way. And so he walks over to the priest and says, Eli, I'm here. And he's like, I didn't call for you. It's like, well, I heard my name. And then he goes back. And it says that the same thing happens three times. And then Samuel, where we pick him to our scripture. Here we continue. It's 1 Samuel 3, 8 through 9. It says, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And what we find here, this is so, so incredible. Here's a young boy who has not clearly understood what he is hearing. He has not clearly understood what, who is speaking or even how to respond. But Eli, from experience, he knows that this is God calling your name. Tells exactly what you should do now is to respond in this way. Announce to him that you want him to speak. And here's what's so incredible is that the next time God, that God called the next generation, they knew exactly what to do. The last one is so incredible. I want to share with you today. This one's going to get really confusing, and I apologize because I, with my Kentucky accent, I have no way to pronounce these any different. There is the story of Elijah and Elisha. Sha and Ja, I guess. It's close. We're going to call him Jay. We can call Elijah just Jay and then Elijah. There's this incredible story that happens with them. So Elijah, Jay, he is the prophet at the time. And one of the most incredible stories that you see throughout Scripture is when Elijah or Jay is when he comes against the 400 prophets of Baal. And we can literally see there's this moment where they are calling out to their God and nothing happens. But then Elijah calls out to the God, to our God, and literally fire falls and consumes everything. It's one of the most crazy and horrific and tragic events of all history. But it was awesome for those who follow the true God. But Elijah, Jay, in his ministry, he did eight total miracles. He did some incredible things. And you can begin to ask, well, what's the most important thing that he did throughout his entire life? Well, those miracles were incredible. That moment with the, God, with the prophets of Baal were incredible. But what was the most spectacular and significant thing that Elijah done? It's when he passed by a young man named Elijah who was simply plowing in his field. And he threw his cloak over him, and he called him to follow him. Why? Why? 
Why of all things is this one so important? Why is this so important? It's because this moment of just casting his cloak on on this person named Elijah was guaranteeing, was ensuring that the next generation, that the kingdom of God would not end with Elijah or Jay. We see that Elijah, at the end of his life, or Elijah prays to Jay and says, I ask, if we pick it up here in 2 Kings, it says, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elijah said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And here's what's so incredible is that, is that we see at the end of Elijah's life that he actually performed 16 miracles. He literally performed double what Elijah had performed or had done. And the kingdom of God literally doubled its impact over the next generation. And so we share these stories because we, we get to this place where we begin to think about the vision of the future and the vision of this next generation. And whenever me and Emily are very old and we are sitting in a hospital bed together about to go to heaven, I pray that's how it goes. That'd be incredible. And when we see the backs of our sons, here is what we hope and here is what we hope to see. And your sons and your nephews and your grandkids, this entire next generation, here is what we see. We hope to see that them going past the point of which we have left them. We hope to see them continuing on to plant greater and stronger churches, to have greater experiences with the Lord, to understand His presence, to understand His words in ways that we could not even comprehend, to literally see the Spirit of God double in their life and in their time. That is our hope. That is our prayer, that they would outdo everything that we ever thought that we could. This is what we pray for. Now listen, we are so excited for where we are as a church. Praise God. Praise God for Foundation Church today. But you know what? I do believe that God has got even greater. That God has even greater plans for Foundation Church 30 years from now. I believe it. But here's the question, and here's the challenge, and here's where we find ourselves. What is needed for that to happen? And what is needed for that to happen is that we must accept our calling to be spiritual parents, mothers, and fathers. And my main point, that was the biggest introduction I've ever had in all of history, to get to the main point, to get to my main point, is that your greatest calling or your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. You see, here in our culture, we get so consumed by what can we do for you, Lord? Or what has the Lord called us to? Or what is our purpose? What is our fulfillment? And we begin to look at this as being one of the greatest callings that God has given us to literally raise this next generation. And this is where we find ourselves. Now, as we begin to just a little piece, I want to give you just some tips, or not tips. I just want to step into this together. Let me just have a real big vulnerable connection with you and then with our own family. It is extremely hard 
to invest in the next generation. It is extremely difficult. We've got five, three, and the newborn, and it is chaos 90% of the time. The house is destroyed 100% of the time. And then you get to the end of your day, and you're like, how in the world have I even been like Jesus? How in the world have I even talked like Jesus? And then you're just at the end of the day, you're like, can we just all please just go our separate ways for like 30 minutes? That's like real life. It's real life. You're busy. They're difficult. They, like, are challenging. And it's like you can continue down whatever you want to use for your own kid, nephew, grandkid. Uh, you, this goes way beyond parents. You have to see this, too. I'm going to get to that in a second. But it's hard. It's hard. But it's something that we are called to do. That we are called to do. And like I said, if you are in this room today and you're like, Aaron, I don't have kids. It's like, well, just look around. Look around. Or go to our kids' ministry. There are plenty of kids that continue to need spiritual fathers and mothers in their life. Look at somebody half your age. Who are they? How could you invest in them? But let's look at this just a little bit more. How do we actually do this? And I just want to give just a few notes that I find throughout the Word. Well, number one, this is like for each and every single one of us, myself included, there is someone out there who needs you. First and foremost, there is someone out there who needs you, so be somebody worth modeling. There is someone out there who needs you, so that's the clear point number one, is that there is somebody there who needs you, but then whenever you actually find them, be somebody worth modeling. Titus is one of my favorite books of all the Bible. And Titus, it gives you like this practical look about what does it actually look like to like contribute to the next generation? What's it look like to plant churches? What's it look like to be involved in areas where people just don't care or know about who Jesus is? Well, here's in Titus 6, here's the encouragement. Verse 2 through 7, it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Notice this. This is for every man in the room. This is the calling. If you've been trying to figure out, hey, what do I need to do? What does should my life look like? Take these and run with them. But it continues on. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They're to treat what is good, teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may be reviled. And likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Man, that is some weighty, weighty things there. Some difficult things, some things that are not easy. And so whenever you think about these words, you're thinking, well, Aaron, I may be good at one of those, but the rest I'm like, I'm working on those myself. I think this is the greatest part of modeling, is that whenever you talk about modeling, modeling is not perfection. It's never about perfection. It's about walking with someone and sharing with someone your screw-ups, your faults, your pains, your sufferings, and just admitting, which is the hardest one for many of us, just like to those that are younger, I messed up or I was wrong. 
That's one of the greatest things of which we can model. But here's what I want to get to as well. We lean so heavily to like, hey, you're not perfect. Nobody is. And what we end up doing is we end up saying, well, if, if I can't be perfect, then what does it even matter? And so we substitute that we, if we can't be perfect to this calling of righteousness. Like we don't see anything in here that says, well, kind of be self-controlled, kind of be patient, kind of be loving, kind of raise the next year. No, reach up, stand up, be stronger, be the model. You won't do it right 90% of the time, but don't fall down to, well, I'm just kind of not perfect. No, rise up, rise up. So this is so, so challenging and so important. But this is where it begins. Who is that someone? And be a model for them. The second one that I want to get to, this is probably the one that continues to be spoken over me continuously, is the second point. Nothing is too small or unimportant. Nothing is too small or unimportant. One of my favorite little uh, questions that I've continued to just like blow my mind is that would you rather have $1 million now versus a penny doubled for 30 days? Which one would you rather? If somebody said, would you rather have a million dollars right now or would you rather have a penny doubled every single day? And many of us would say, give me that cash. I'll take the million dollars right now. Well, this is incredibly profound. If we look at the graphic, if you look over the course of time, you see in day one, you've got a penny. There's nothing exciting about a penny. But you can see that this over the course of time, how it doubles. And even by day 15, you only got like $163. But it continues to double. And it doubles. 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 And by day 30, you've got over $5 million in the bank. And so for everybody that chose $1 million, you chose very, very wrong. This is what you would call just the idea of what in the world is compound interest and how does it work? It's still the craziest thing ever. But I began to look at this in my own life. This has been the fascinating question, is that every single one of us is like, man, we just want to just knock it out of the park. Or we create these incredible moments in our, in our life where we think that, you know, we just got to really, really just like make it really complicated. Or if we think about financial terms, it's just like I started too late. You know, I don't have enough time now. My kids are now old. There's all sorts of different connections that you can make with this idea. But I just began to just look at this as being able to make this incredible, incredible connection with you is that there's nothing too small and unimportant. If we look at Mark 4, it gives us the idea of what the kingdom of God actually looks like. The kingdom of God, it says in Mark 4.30, it said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And there's a connection I want to make here is that this mustard seed, if you were to look at it, you're like, there's no way that this can grow into that tree. It seems so small and it seems so insignificant. There's two connections here. Number one is that what you may see in somebody may be very small and they may think very insignificant. Or maybe how you're connecting with your kid may seem very small or insignificant. 
But as we continue to see that over the course of time, that there's this incredibly explosive potential that's buried within this little seed. That seems so insignificant, seems so small. How does it go from an insignificant to enormous tree? Someone plants it. Seeds do not plant themselves. Someone must plant this seed. And let me tell you, in my life and in others' lives, I know this to be true. There's no greater joy than seeing something thought insignificant come to its greatest potential. And so my challenge for you today is that nothing is too small or important. When you think about your investment in the next generation, we aren't talking about taking a million dollars or these million-dollar-sized moments. It's just about these small moments. Imagine with your father as with your son. Like these small moments of time where you maybe just speak a little word. You remind them of a scripture. Or you just give them a hug and say, you know, it's okay. You just blew it? Yeah. You were crazy? Yeah. It's okay. You begin to sit down with them and say, hey, let's just read the Bible just for five minutes. Let's just open it up. Or you act it out, or you just get crazy with it, whatever you want to do. Or think about this when you sit down before you eat and you just hold hands for one another and you say, let's just pray. What seems so small and insignificant, consistently done over the course of time, compounds and compounds and compounds and compounds. And so whenever you look at the investments that you're making into this next generation, I don't ask I don't believe that I'm even looking at my life. I'm not trying to do these incredibly large moments. I'm just trying to be faithful and consistent in small moments throughout the day. Man, I believe that that will make all the difference. Don't miss, though, the amazing gifts that's inside just because they aren't developed yet. There's an incredible potential in all of our kids for success. There's incredible potential for what the Lord has in store for them. But here's what I want to step into as well. When this comes, I want to just really step on my toes and your toes just a little bit. Think about what you have taught your kids in the last month. For us, I love to teach my kids how to cook. I love it. Sat down with a couple guys and they were talking about how he loves to teach his kids about finance. And my kid right now, Asher, he can make a pretty good little egg and sausage hash. It's pretty good. It ends up being a mess, but it's pretty good. But I began to think about this in other areas of your life. Maybe for you, you think about what your kid can be in as, as an athlete. Maybe for you, it's thinking about what your kid could be as a student. And here's what you end up doing is you will put all of your investment and all of your time into all of these other things in their life, but you may open God's word once in three months. And here's what I began to be challenged with. I was like, what are we investing in? Or how are we investing? And so as you think about what you have done over the course of your life, or you think about your kids, what are you teaching them? They're going to become something. No, we don't get to choose a lot of it. But I do believe from what Scripture has said and the generational pattern of the Lord is that He wants to use us to do it. What you will see for your kids will define your impact. You see, Tiger Woods, his dad drove him to be the best player, the best golfer in all of history. It was his dad that was the one that got him to that point, even to the point where they had a safe word, and the safe word was enough. 
And we see Tiger Woods is one of the greatest golfers in the entire world, but we also see as Tiger Woods has some of the worst scandals. He's also had a body that's been broken and beat, and you begin to look at what for. So what are you investing in? How are you investing in your child? And the last one that I want to give for you today is that empowering the next generation cannot be outsourced. It cannot be outsourced. Now, here's what's some incredible good news. It cannot be outsourced. And here's, well, let me tell you what I mean by that first. In, as a teacher, here's what we would normally hear about different complaints as of our school system. And I've said them a hundred times, and you probably said them a hundred times, is that they don't teach life skills. That's like the biggest complaint in the education system. And here's what's crazy. You got to then ask yourself, well, who should be teaching them life skills? If you're thinking about a bank account, how do you balance a checkbook? Nobody does that anymore. That's not even real. I don't think. Maybe you do. Kudos for you. But how do you save? How do you work on a budget? And we begin to say, well, the school doesn't teach them any of that. You should teach them that. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. We love to outsource the education to our kids. We love to outsource our kids to whatever and whoever. And here's what's so challenging is that you actually find, and I know this to be true, is that if you choose to outsource your kids to anybody or somebody that we believe that isn't grounded in their faith, they will influence your kids. They will drive the direction of your kid's life. You imagine any sort of social media. If you will not be an influence in your life, then somebody else will. That is a fact. That is a fact. There's some incredible good news. Is that one, we believe that you can. We believe that this is your role, that this is your job. But here's what is so incredible. Me and my wife, we talk about just our kids' ministry. We talk about our church all the time. And we just begin to see this incredible prayer. What's the part of our youth ministry? What's the role of our kids' ministry? Is that we are here to partner with parents to raise joyful and passionate Jesus followers of the next generation. Now, here's what's incredible. We are not owning the faith of your kids. We are partnering with you in the faith of your kids. We're going to tell them all about who Jesus is. We're going to love them. We're going to support them. And maybe that may be a calling on your life to partner with parents to raise the next generation in our kids' ministry and our youth ministry. But that's the role of the church. We're here to partner with you. And so as we come to a close today, here is what I want to leave you with. It's just a few reflection questions. And I just want to encourage you, with all heads bowed today, I just want you to think about these. What seeds are you planting right now? And how might your decisions today impact generations to come? How might your decisions today impact generations to come? The second thing I want you to think about is think of someone younger in your life. You got them. They're in your head. Maybe it's a son, daughter, niece, nephew, grandchild. What are some ways you can intentionally invest in and empower that person this week in their faith, in their walk, in their understanding of who Jesus is. How could you do that?
So I do pray and believe it's time for the church of God to connect generations, to see the kingdom of God to move. We must allow God in every single person in this room to must allow God to open up our hearts and allow God to give us a genuine a genuine father's heart, a genuine mother's heart, the heart of a spiritual parent, the heart that once allowed an Isaac Newton to move out of spiritual darkness and death into something brand new, to a new destiny. My prayer today I want to leave you with. Heavenly Father, I thank you today. I thank you that you are the God of generations. In a time, an age where the generation gap is so big and so wide, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you will give us the hearts of spiritual fathers and mothers and that you will be connecting generations and not disconnecting. And Lord, I pray that today, that if there's somebody in this room who has not yet made the commitment to follow you, Lord, that that may be where it begins. And that their life of following you would just be a model for their son, for their daughter of what it looks like to be in obedience with you. And Lord, though our generations are different and our expressions, Lord, are different, Father, may we always surround the next generation with an atmosphere of faith, of prayer, and of encouragement so that your kingdom And your glory will move from generations to generations until the day, Lord, that you come back. In Jesus' sweet, sweet name we pray. Amen.